0: And then there are those who are blind by choice, those seeing and not believing. And then we have actually the same group of people. They are bound by conceit. They're condemned by their their own stubbornness. And we're going to look at these three groups of people here. Just picking it up in John chapter 9, verse 1. It reads, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, this is a common refrain that people go to, uh, this idea that judgment for sins is not generational. They say, some people say that it is generational, that the sins that my father or grandfather committed or my grandmother and great-grandmother, my mother, those have all carried into our lives. There is this idea of reaping and sowing. If you teach a child to be angry, they will be raised as angry individuals. If you teach a child to be a thief, they will become probably a kleptomaniac where they cannot cease if you teach somebody to be a brawler they will end up being a brawler now as far as that goes that's reaping and sowing and god will judge the individual for their particular sins we will not be judged for the sins of our parents but we will be judged if we continue in a particular sin that our parents taught us romans chapter fourteen twelve says so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, in the world's economy, the stronger the flesh, the more useful we are. In God's economy, the weaker the flesh, uh, more powerfully God can work in through us. And so that that's how God works with us. He doesn't uh, seek to blame us for what has taken place in the lives of our families who, who sinned, this man or someone else. But God wants to glorify us. Now, this particular guy was born blind, and God could use him because he was born blind. But somebody who is born strong, who has it all, who was who the first king of Israel that was ahead above everybody? He was stout. He was strong. Saul, King Saul. Everybody looked to him and said, wow, that's the guy. But then when Samuel came and he was going to anoint the next king, and it wasn't going to be Jonathan, his son, or any of his other children. It was going to be from the line of Jesse. Who was that going to be? David. It was going to be David. And who was David? Was David the oldest? Yeah, he was the youngest, right? He was a handsome, ruddy young man who spent time with the sheep out there. He was a shepherd and he would throw rocks and he would fight off wolves and lions and all of those things. But that's who God chose. And and they didn't even bring him forward. Jesse didn't even bring him forward when Samuel wanted to anoint one of his sons. And they had to go send for him because he wasn't even considered anything. So in in the eyes of the world, he was considered weak and small. But God was able to use him in a powerful way. And, of course, King Saul, he's one that started out big and mighty, and he fell hard because of his pride that he had on the inside. And so this individual who was blind, He was certainly humbled because he was blind. He probably didn't have a prideful bone in his body, and people could easily take advantage of him, and he would never know it. And so going on, secondly, infirmities can be used to glorify God, and it all depends on the perspective of the one who is infirmed. Um, I've mentioned before that occasionally I'll listen to Dennis Prager Dennis Prager, he speaks six languages. He is a rabbi. He's going to come out, if he hasn't already, with a commentary on the entire Old Testament from the Jewish perspective. He's not a Christian. He is a Jew. And the man is just walking talent as far as knowledge is concerned. And he says that happiness is a choice. No matter where you find yourself, you can choose to be happy. And there's a story that I read uh, in church years ago, and I don't have it here. But it's of this individual, uh, I think it was in a restaurant, and somebody came in to rob the restaurant, came in through the back door. And make a long story short, the manager tried to convince the guy, just take the money and run, but he ended up getting shot. And this is a true story. They took him to the hospital. And as they were doing the, um, I guess they call it triage, or they were doing the triage, they looked at him, and he did not look well. He was losing a lot of blood. Uh, He was laying there. A lot of people were over him, and he could tell the concern on the nurses and the doctors that were working on him. And so they tried to start communicating with him, and he was in a lot of pain. And they turned to him, and they said, are you allergic to anything? And he took a big, deep breath, and he held his teeth for a second together. And he blurted out, Bullets. <laughs> Are you allergic to anything? Yeah, bullets. He's allergic to bullets. And so they could tell that everything was going to be okay from that particular point because he chose just to have a good attitude. There's nothing you can do. If, if it's your time, it's your time. And that was an inspirational story for me to hear that come from that guy. Just been shot, wasn't looking good, and he made a joke in the midst of his calamity. He chose to be happy. So the infirmities that we may have, we may lament them, but God uses them to effect a change, a particular change that he wants in our lives. And relief may or may not come in this life, but it will certainly come in the next life for those who believe. And Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, it reads, I am making everything new, and everything will be made new when the Lord destroys the heavens and the earth. We get our new bodies, First Corinthians chapter 15, and we will not be suffering anymore whatsoever for all of eternity. Verse 4, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Here, we see that Jesus is probably referring in the phrase, night is coming, to his crucifixion. Since he is the light of the world, the light of the world is going to be snuffed out. He is foretelling of the time where he is going to be, in fact, crucified. But he is the light of the world. Now, we have covered the light pretty extensively, uh, but... The Lord wants us to be reminded of the light because he keeps bringing it up here in the gospel of John. That's number three. Light reveals truth and exposes sin. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 13, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible for it is the light that makes everything visible. And also John chapter 3, verse 19, which we have gone over before, but we'll go over it again. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that it, his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seeing plainly that what he has done has been done through God and so truth can be seen because of the light of God which is Jesus Christ and also sin in verse 6 having said this he spit on the ground made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes go he told him wash in the pool of Siloam this words mean sent so the man went and washed and came home seeing now I don't know about you but uh, I've thought about this. Now, did Jesus, you know, he had to have enough spit to make mud. And back then, I'm sure everybody spat, so to speak. If you go to a foreign country, Cambodia, did you see the ladies spitting over there all the time? I mean, just all the time they're spitting. And then they have that uh, betel nut that they chew. And their teeth are black because of the betel nut. And they are just spitting all The time, Well, in the culture Jesus was in, it was probably a a real common thing to do that. So he makes this little pile of mud. He spits in the dirt. He picks it up. He starts mixing it up. And he says, here's mud in your eye. And I don't know if he actually put it in the eye or if he just put it on top of the eye. I don't know which one it was. But I'm sure some mud probably got in his eye and the blind man said, I can't see, you know, because he got mud in his eye, and I don't know what was happening, if, they, if the mud actually scraped away some skin, I have no idea how this took place, but this was highly unorthodox, because when Jesus wanted to heal before, what do he do, just spoke, it, like the centurion's servant, he just, okay, be it unto you, according to your faith, and The centurion said, hey, I have people who are under me. I'm a man of authority. You can just speak the word and it'll happen. And he marveled at the faith of the centurion. But here, he actually bends down and he makes mud. Now, there's a reason that he does this, and he puts it on his eye. And number three there, the Pharisees were more concerned with the making of mortar than the miracle of the maker. The purpose of the spit and the mud was... I think a couple of reasons. For those who witnessed the healing, they were probably marveling. They were going, well, what's he going to do now? What's going to happen? Because he did not do this in secret. It was a little more dramatic, uh, it drew some attention. But making mud on the Sabbath was work. And so you were not allowed, mortar is what they'd use in between the bricks. And if you made any amount of mortar, which is mud, the pharisees would become apoplectic they would be pulling out their hair saying what is this guy doing and here we have those who are blind by choice the pharisees they were more concerned about the making of the mortar than the miracle of the maker i just said that but here in verse 8 his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begged are begging asked isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg some claimed that he was others said no he only looks like him but he himself insisted i am the man how then were your eyes open they demanded and by the way this word they demanded or the two words there i've looked it up in other versions and demanded is not there it's more like he asked and so i would say in the niv this word demanded is probably a little suspect it's the people were just inquiring. We don't have the Jews really mentioned here yet. They come just a little bit later. And so I think, how were these eyes opened of this man? They were just inquiring. How did this happen? <clears throat> Verse 11. He replied, the man, they called Jesus, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he said. So there is a question here, and I think you have that on your outline, on the part of the neighbors, the Jews, and the acquaintances. Was this really a blind man? Because when somebody is blind from birth, I went to school with a guy who was blind from birth, and he had a friend that was almost deaf, and they would go around school all the time. He had uh, double hearing aids. And this one guy was completely blind and he'd carry around his white cane. And one thing that you would notice about him is his eyes were a little bit recessed into his skull because his eyes never developed. And so there would have been a question if this guy was blind from birth and he was older, there would have been a depression where his eyes were, not a severe one necessarily, but When eyes are normal and they are full, they fill out that portion of the face. And so it would have been a natural question to ask. You look a lot like him, but now the eyes are full. And he insisted it was him. So the miracle was performed in order to get a response. And that's what Jesus was interested in. First, there was the affirmation of his Messiahship. It was a signal to those who were around that he could perform a miracle that had never been heard of being performed before in Israel. And then secondly, the denunciation of man-made rules in relationship with God because they had this rule of mortar. You cannot make mortar for bricks on the Sabbath, and that's what Jesus did. Now, we don't have to have a miracle for someone else to start asking questions in our lives. We can all be used in this particular way. <clears throat> if you are just an active Christian, at some point, somebody's going to ask you. They're going to direct a question to you. Uh, my son, uh, he's currently not going to church, but you know we raised him in such a way where he knows God. My daughter-in-law, she went to uh, Christian uh, school when she was younger. Uh, Calvary Chapel in Capistrano wasn 't it she went she went to the school there with Pastor Chuck Smith, Jr., who was the pastor, and he was over the school and we re- recently went up to my grandson 's birthday party and he was full four. four years old four he was four years old and so that 's exactly how he says it, but I met this guy, this guy works for the FBI. And uh, before that, we're standing around the pool and he says, uh, <clears throat> so who are you? Do you know anybody here? And I said, yeah. And I said, uh, Scotty's my son. And he goes, oh, you're the one. Oh, you're the pastor. And I said, yeah, I'm the pastor. He goes, all right, cool, man. That's really cool. And he starts talking, come to find out. He had been to Bible college. His wife went to Bible college. His wife went to Bible college just to find her husband who was at Bible college. They got married. They moved out here. They have four kids. And so we just started talking. And he said, You know, I talked to your son, Scott. And, and uh, he goes, By your lifestyle? He goes, Man, are you a Christian? You know, Scotty, he has tattoos everywhere. And, but the testimony of his mouth caused this guy to ask him, Are you a Christian? And so if you live like a Christian, even my son who isn't currently fellowshipping, if you live like a Christian, somebody eventually is going to ask you. They're going to make an inquiry. This guy was healed, and God wanted Jesus, when he healed him, he wanted the people to ask, to find out. He wanted a dialogue started, and he wants that with us as well. So if we are serving, like, for instance, if those people who go down to Mexico... When they get back, chances are somebody's going to ask them about it. So what'd you do? Where'd you go? How'd you help out? You know, who were the people? What were they like? Uh, Was it really poor? Was it not so poor in the area? And they're going to ask you several questions. Um, People will ask me what I do on the weekends sometimes, and I'll tell them what I do. And then they ask questions. And so that's why God wants us to be involved. It's, well, when we get saved, people ask questions. If you go home and you tell everybody, well, I got saved. How did the people react in your household? And those who are fresh out of the womb, so to speak, getting saved, lots of questions come their way. If you go on a missions trip, if you do Christmas on the Main, if you do VBS, if you do any kind of outreach, these kids uh, over at, um, what's the name of the middle school over there? TDS. They're over at TDS school. You guys passed things out today, and there were questions from some kids and parents that naturally arose passing out the flyer to invite them to youth group and giving them a track. And by the way, I ordered more tracks today, different kind. <clears throat> so there's questions that come up. Sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're bad. Sometimes they're like, what are you doing? Oh, no, you don't want to go that path. And then sometimes they're inquiring I I happened to put a post on somebody's blog uh, or a picture. And this picture was Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe came out as an atheist. And I wrote on there something to the effect, atheism implies omniscience. And I made another comment on there that it's, I forget what it was exactly, but something like, stupid. Stupid this man is or something like that and then somebody responded and so he said you know what's wrong with that you know with available information people are atheists what's the big deal and I said with available information is not all information atheists conclude and this is a short response I don't only had so many letters I said, atheists conclude that they know there is no God. And I said, that is impossible because you can't know everything. I said, the universe is a big place. And then he says, well, what do you, how do you explain these people that are believers with limited information? And I said, well, there's enough information to convince, but not enough information to compel. I've told you guys that one. And I left it. And I'm going to wait for his response. I might end up having a dialogue with this guy because now he's interested. And you can do that. You can put something in a blog, but you have to be prepared to answer, you know, and when they come at you. And so God wants us to have interaction. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be a witness, just like this guy was a witness. Now, going under an inquisition, this was on the part of the Pharisees. Did I miss one? I'm sorry. Oh, an event will evoke... response evoke which means if you do something eventually somebody's going to ask maybe not every single time but eventually someone will ask somebody who is not saved when they found out i was going to cambodia they said should i give you something to go well that was like random You know, and and we've had conversations before, but uh, it will certainly evoke a response if you have an event, just getting saved, serving, whatever it might be. B, an inquisition on the part of the Pharisees. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees a man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. And see, he made the mud. It was on the Sabbath, not keeping the Sabbath. He was going to break it, just spite them. But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. It was the Pharisees who were divided here. Now, we obviously know who won out in this argument, but they were divided. A miracle like this had not been seen, and these Jews had their own set of rules, and it violated their man-made rules. Now, that wasn't the only rule that they had. I'll include that in this list, but there were rules that trumped All other rules that they had made up. And they thought that their rules were acts of righteousness. And Jesus condemned them for these extra rules they added to the scripture. Things that Jews could not do on the Sabbath. They taught that you should not look in the mirror on the Sabbath. Because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair. And that would be reaping. You can't do that. They said that you could only eat an egg which had been laid. That you, excuse me. No, this is not correct. They said that you could not eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath. If the egg was laid on the Sabbath, you couldn't touch it either and you couldn't store it for later because that would be considered work and that egg was sanctified. A donkey could be led out of the stable on the Sabbath, but the harness and saddle had to be in place on him the day before. (laughs) It goes on. An egg could not be boiled on the Sabbath, either by normal means or by putting it near a hot kettle or by wrapping it in a hot cloth or by putting it in a hot sand outside. You are not allowed to cook an egg on the Sabbath. If the lights were on when the Sabbath came, Sabbath begins at sundown, you could not blow them out. In other words, they had these lamps, candles. If they had not been lit in time, then you could not light them after that. You in other words, you'd have to be in your house in dark. You could not strike something to make a fire to light a lamp if the sun had already set. Also, it is unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. There was an exception to this in that you were allowed to move a ladder on the Sabbath, but you could only move it four steps. It was unlawful to wear any jewelry or ornaments on the Sabbath, since this might be construed as carrying a burden. So no jewelry. It was not permitted to wear false teeth on the Sabbath. That probably made it for a nice time in the synagogue. You were allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them into salt because you might leave them in the salt too long and pickle them and this was considered to be Sabbath-breaking. The Pharisees actually had discussions as to how long it took to pickle a radish. It was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the ground because that made mud, and mud was mortar, and that was work. If a woman got mud on her dress, she was to wait until it had dried, and then she was permitted to crumple the dress in her hand hands one time and crush it and then shake it out once if that did not do the trick then she had to wear it how did they come up with this stuff and there's more than this there there are dozens and dozens probably hundreds of these prohibitions now you might think this is funny a little bit they take it very seriously but we can fall into the same trap as Christians that we have certain things you can do and certain things you cannot do certain things you should do and certain things you should avoid for instance should you wear a tie and a coat to church on Sunday for service There are churches that say, yes, it is highly recommended that you wear a tie and a coat. First time I wore a tie uh, to a service at Calvary Chapel, somebody came up to, or one of the times I did, somebody came up to me and said, oh, you're wearing a tie. Good, man. God bless you for that. You're honoring the gospel. What? I'm honoring the gospel because I have a tie on? And I immediately realized that this individual made this connection that wearing a tie is more holy. It's more honoring. It is a better thing to do. And I I thought, okay, yeah, that's why I'm wearing it. I'm honoring the gospel today. And next week I don't think I wore one. But for that individual, I affirmed what they believed because I didn't want to have them trip up. And I could later instruct them, and I'm sure I probably did, But anyhow, what about um, you may not work on Sunday? Let me ask you, do pastors work on Sunday? (laughs) Pastors work on Sunday. Priests worked on the Sabbath, and yet they did not defile the Sabbath. They were committing uh, these animals to slaughter is what they were doing. And they were getting all bloodied, and it was a hard day's work, especially on the festival days. And so we can do that. I actually had a pastor that used to be in Lakeside. I saw him at a restaurant, and he came up to me, and he said, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing good. How are you? And we talked shop, you know, for a little bit. And I said, you know, yeah, this afternoon I have to go out and do something because I'm also bivocational. He goes, oh, brother, you know how many pastors sin doing that, going out and working on Sunday? You know, we ought not to do it. It's the Sabbath for us, you know. And, and I go, oh, okay, taken under advisement. Scripture says that we're not supposed to worry about that. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, it says, don't let anyone judge you because of what you eat or drink. Don't let anyone judge you about holy days. I'm talking about special feasts and new moons and Sabbath days. They are only a shadow of the things that were to come or that were going to come. But what is real is found in Christ. In Colossians verse 21 of that same chapter, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Rules like that are all going to die out as time goes by. They are only based on human rules and teachings. And it, it goes on in 22 and 23 and it talks about that. There was one where I was given a message and this couple visited for the first time. And I started talking about Daniel and how he was eating only vegetables. And I started making a comment on how there are some individuals who believe that it is more righteous, more holy, better for you if you were a vegan as opposed to a carnivore. Uh, You should be an herbivore and only eat those things that are the herbs of the field, so to speak. And I started to heckle it a little bit. That somebody would be a vegan and then condemn somebody who ate meat. And I had several illustrations of that. And this one couple, the woman was just dying in the back. She was throwing her head back. She was smiling. She was kind of hunching over for a little bit. And I just go, wow, what's going on? Later I found out they were at the church for a while that she is a strict vegan and she had just gotten on her husband that morning for eating meat and here i was telling her and the whole church that don't think you're more holy if you just eat a vegan diet the lord said whatever i call clean do not call unclean you can eat bugs and lobsters and crustaceans and tarantulas whatever you want to eat you are able to eat You know, so this idea that our behavior as Christians is more holy if we do something or don't do something. Like, for instance, there's a group of believers that say, and maybe someone in here, don't dance. You know, if you dance, that's just not good. You can't be dancing. And then there's the Pentecostal church. That's all they do is dance. And they're going up and down the aisles. And, you know, it's just a a wild time. So we want to make sure we're not judging that incorrectly we should operate in a realm where there is so much freedom we might run the risk of stumbling somebody that's one half of it the other half is don't do anything that would stumble somebody if you think there's a possibility and so that's how christ told us to live not to shackle ourselves with these commandments of men which in fact the jews were doing Uh, going on strong opposition arose from the jews That's C on your list there. Uh, Verse 17. Did I miss one? Did I miss one again? I'm looking. Oh, number one. Some Jews were keeping to tradition over truth. Of course, that's what I just explained to you. Their traditions were more important holding to the fact of not making mud than this guy being healed. And it was a verifiable, a bona fide miracle. Verse 17, finally they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened, the man replied. He's a prophet. Simple response, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. They wanted proof. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he came to see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. You see what's going on here? The Jews denied the truth and demanded proof. The next one is just like it. After obtaining proof, the Jews denied the truth. And so these Jews, they had this proof staring right at them. The testimony of two or three witnesses. You have three witnesses right there. You have the blind man. You have both of his parents that are there. They're bearing testimony to this. It's a miracle. The words are going around. The Pharisees were divided about this already. When they went to the leaders of the Pharisees, the Jews who were there, they just would not accept the testimony. And they were getting upset because of the stupid mud that had been made. I'm, this miracle was huge. If somebody was born blind from youth, do you think it would make the front page of the paper? You think paper. Do you guys know what that is? Newspaper? You think it would make the front page of the internet? You don't think it would go worldwide? There are probably millions of views on that particular site if somebody did this. So, what was it that the Jews were so afraid of? Why did they want to hold on to their tradition more than seek God? Well, the issue is sin. It's stubbornness, the unwillingness to change, uh, the refusal that they held on to. Some wanted to remain in submission to leaders who were in error. Uh, They were so afraid about being kicked out of the synagogue that they just, whatever, we're just going to follow this particular leader of the Jews who says this, and then everything will be fine. And we should be willing to go to whatever direction the Spirit leads. The Spirit will only lead us in the direction that agrees with the word the Spirit of God is not going to tell us to get involved in something that is not already dictated in his word or allowed or permissible in his word. If we get off in something that is occultish in behavior, kind of like uh, if you guys remember the Toronto blessing and all of that and barking in the spirit and being out of control and slain in the spirit, none of that is scriptural at all, especially when scripture says our God is a God of order. And the spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of the prophets. And so that is just way out there. If the spirit is leading, it will comport. It will be concomitant. It will be alongside what the word has to say. It's not going to veer off. Nobody will be able to stand up and say, we have something new that is from the Lord that is not in Scripture, and this is what we're supposed to do. God doesn't operate like that. And so the methods may change, but the message remains the same. God can modify a few things. This guy that I told you about that knew my son, he said that at his church, he was at currently, it's a home church, and he said there's about 50 people there, and he said before that he was at this other church, and it had to do with uh, this movement that comes out of Bethel, and um, anything that comes out of the Bethel movement, you want to be kind of careful of not that they're not believers they are but it just kind of gets wild they're doing stuff that is beyond the bounds of solid doctrine and whatever it may be uh, the message remains the same the methods are sacrifice submission worship order fellowship perseverance long-suffering if you see all those are characteristics We hold to them, but we don't start adding to the word of God. Four times in scripture, it says, do not add to God's word. Uh, Revelation, uh, it's Deuteronomy as well, and Proverbs, and uh, I forget the Ecclesiastes. It's in Ecclesiastes. Those four books of the Bible say, do not add to God's word. And so if you follow what he says in his word, everything's going to be fine, but the Lord may change the method a little bit. You just want to make sure it's in keeping with his word. Thirdly, a false teacher will use fear to lead others. I should have said to threaten others. Uh, There is the threat of excommunication. There is a threat of eternal security that you're probably not saved. There is this idea of loss of fellowship, privilege also in ministry. All of these things, a leader, if they are a false leader like these Jews were false, they would use intimidation tactics to keep you in line. That's what cults do. Cults, they will check your income. They will check how much you're giving. They will say that you're not in good standing if you don't bring this up to date, kind of like the IRS, only they have eternal consequences heading over your life and over your family if you don't do what's right. And if you don't do what's right, you can be excommunicated. If you start to question the authority, you're being contentious and you ought not to question uh, what is going on. All of these things play into those who are false teachers hopefully in this church we've never done anything like that i don't know of a single calvary chapel who has done anything like that i don't know of a baptist church who has done anything like that but there are churches who believe in god who believe in jesus christ That if you leave their church, they'll they'll say, well, I'm sorry, you know, your salvation is in jeopardy now. You didn't get baptized according to our formula. I'm sorry that uh, you feel that way. It just means maybe we'll see you there, maybe we won't. And that is intimidation. And that's what the Jews were using in order to control the people. And that is just sinful. Let's go on. Heavy intimidation here. Verse 24, the second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. So it wasn't good enough the first time. This came up a second time. They said, bring him back here. We need to question him. Give glory to God. Now this phrase, if you know the scripture at all, you know that this phrase has been used elsewhere. And when this phrase is used... There is something that tags along with it. There is a judgment that comes with this particular phrase. And actually, if you want to take out a Bible and turn there, it's in Joshua chapter 7. And this is a particular case where the Jews were going out and they were subduing all the people in the land that God had provided for them. And they were been, they were given victory after victory after victory. All of a sudden, they started losing. Once they started losing, Joshua got together with the other guys, the commander of the forces and the elders, and they go, something's going on here. We, we are not doing something right. And so they started casting lots. And that's how they did things back then. They cast these lots. It's like rolling dice or bones or sticks. And I don't know exactly how they did it. But that's what they did, and they, by lots, went through all the 12 tribes and then through each individual clan, and they came down to this guy by the name of Achan. And Achan, on one of these battles, and they were instructed not to take anything for themselves, Achan did. Achan took something for himself. And what did he take? In verse 21 of Joshua chapter 7, He says, when I saw the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. Well, how did they get him to this point? After the lots were cast and the lot fell to Achan, Joshua approaches him back up in verse 19, and he says, my son, give glory to the Lord. In other words, give glory to God the God of Israel. And he says, tell me, what have you done? Do not hide it from me. And so this would appear to be the open hand of fellowship, right? Brother, tell me what you've done. What's going on here? This lot has fallen on you. Obviously, the Lord wants us to know it's you. So what has happened? Well, I just revealed to you what happened. What was the consequence? Verse 24. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, The silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Accor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they buried them. And so if somebody comes up to you and says, brother, give glory to the Lord. What comes next? Stoning. And not only did he get stoned, but his entire family, all of his possessions, stoned, buried, covered over in a heap. That's what happened to him. And so these guys, you know, the the priests, they're saying, give glory to the Lord. And we know that something is up. When, if you knew the scriptures, and chances are they did know the scriptures, they knew that that was a threat. At least that's my... That's my interpretation. That's how I see what's going on there. Uh, They were flustered and frustrated what Jesus was doing. And they were just trying to coerce and make the people be subdued to their wishes. Verse 25, he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. And this is the blind man speaking. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Now he's chastising the leaders of the Jews who have power over him. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, what do you call that? That is sarcasm. This is sarcasm. Do you want to become his disciples too? I mean, he is just finger in your eye. Here's, a, here's some mud in your eye, buddy. You know, he's just giving it right back to them. And then comes the brutal vilification or the defamation or the denigration. They just attack him after this. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. Now that, that's supposed to be an attack. Back then it would have been an attack because they go on to say, we are, Moses's, are disciples of Moses's." This, for our reading in our language today, this would be equivalent to none of your bees bags, you know, something that light. But back then, this was very severe, telling somebody that they're a disciple of someone else other than Moses. So this was a slap in the face. Like in the Middle East, if you go over there, if somebody picks up their sandal and throws it at you, that is the ultimate in a slap in the face, so to speak. Verse 29, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. He's kind of saying, I'm going to use this word, are you that stupid? That's what he is saying to them by this particular phrase now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes in other words you can't see this what is wrong with you guys and this guy is standing here alone his parents are not backing him up verse 31 we know that god does not listen to sinners he listens to a godly man who does his will nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man if this man were not of god he could do nothing to this they replied You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. In other words, you have been sinful since the time you were in your mother's womb, and you've come out. Now, I mean, we don't know this guy Jesus. And who do you think you are? And and it's just going back and forth. This sarcasm is going back and forth. And these are like Congress, the Senate the judges that we have today, that's who these guys, and the president, the chief priest who would have been the president. And if that's how this guy is responding to them. The respect just went up because they started taunting him. Now, a little bit to say about sarcasm. When well-timed, perfectly, and logically executed, it is the proper response for false Bible teachers. But you have to know how to do it. If you do it wrong, it's not good. Jesus did this. God did this in the Old Testament, in the book of Amos, and, and a couple of others. God just... You, and Paul did this railing sarcasm. It got Paul punched. It got him beat because of his mouth. And so if you see a false Bible teacher, I have no problem being sarcastic to a false Bible teacher and I would in a heartbeat tell the whole world how false they are and if they came back and started arguing with me I would go right back at them myself when like for instance if people come and I've had this happen where they're tried to impugn people in the church or the ministry here it's my job to defend it and I I go after them I do not let them have an inch when it comes to that I've only done that a couple of times but it is something, and by the way, when I have done it, uh, the people, at least in one case, the guy repented. He said, well, what do I do? How do I correct this? And so if it's used properly, and I've used it improperly. There's no question. You know, I've made mistakes, and I've learned from my mistakes. If you know how to use it, if God prepares you for it, I mean, you have a false Bible teacher. I'm not saying don't use it. I mean, you've seen what's going on here. This guy had a miracle happen to him. And what happened to him after that? The worst day in his life and the best day of his life were all on the same day, it seems like. I mean, This guy, he finally can see. He has never seen before. He's having trouble taking in the world that is around him. He's being thrown off of his rocker because these people don't accept him. Because the one guy who healed him, I don't know what's going on here, but this guy healed me and you guys can't stand it. I don't know what's going on, but you don't know who he is. I don't get it. What's going on? And so the guy is very flustered, right? And what do they do? They kick him out. Now, how do you think they kicked him out back then? They kicked him out. They probably picked him up, shoved him out. You had temple guards who were there. It wasn't, uh, please, could you follow us to the door? We'd like to escort you out. It wasn't something like that. These guys were manhandlers. These guys were brutal. People would die. They wanted to kill Jesus. So how do you think they were going to treat this guy? He was a witness. And what did they want to do to Lazarus when he rose from the dead? They wanted to kill Lazarus. I mean, they were just trying to kill people left and right. Do you think they killed people? Do you think the leaders of the Jews killed people to maintain their power and to shut people up? Absolutely they did. Because we see the record of them trying to do it to at least a couple of people, and they finally succeeded with Jesus himself. So we should never think it it is strange to be persecuted when standing for God, and that's exactly what happened to this guy. Insults uh, will come when you are his disciples, we saw that this guy brought some sarcasm back and he asked him, do you want to be his disciples too? They said, we don't know where he is from. In other words, he's a nobody. They're trying to attack the character and integrity of Jesus. And they turned to him and said, you were neck deep in sin when you were born. Just insult after insult. In other words, they're saying, you are not a real Jew jesus is a nobody and you're not holy or spiritual or part of the nation of israel that's what they were telling this guy and the blind man stood his ground he retorted back you don't know where he comes from wow you're so smart you are so learned you know I, i wish we had the rest of the conversation we probably don't have the whole thing and if he can open eyes of a blind man he is not a sinner which i mean that is truth that is railing sarcasm Wrapped in truth is what that is, or truth wrapped in railing sarcasm. Then there's the sweet consolation, and this is the best part of the story. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. As I just said, the blind man had just experienced the greatest thing in his life, and it was a miracle, and he had just experienced the worst thing in his life, being thrown out by the leaders of the Jews. And I'm sure the man was despondent. He was a beggar. And now he has a sight. He has been completely restored. Uh, In Luke chapter 7, verse 45, remember the woman who broke the alabaster jar over Jesus and kissed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the lesson that we learn from that is in Luke chapter 7, verses 45 to 47. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And this guy, he immediately worshiped. He understood who he was and who he was talking to, who was right before him. The greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. And by the way, we have all been forgiven a great debt. It's just how much we realize how great the debt is. So it's contingent upon us. For those who feel they have been forgiven much, they love much. And love has an action. Those who are able. And there are some who are not able. But those who are able, they will put their love into action. And those people who sacrifice regularly, who are there for the body, who are selfless, all of those things, they're the ones that realize they are loved much. The individuals who come to church that profess Christ, if they're not doing much, well, they don't feel they're forgiven much, that they're okay. And the depth of our forgiveness, we cannot even get to the bottom of it. I mean, what that entails if we don't receive that forgiveness is huge. It's monumental, I guess, is the word that I can use for that. And so Jesus healed him physically. Jesus allowed the persecution. Jesus brought comfort and accepted the dejected blind man. He was unhappy, disappointed, miserable, depressed, gloomy, or gloom. Now, I'm reading a little bit into that. But you can see how this can take place, that this guy would just be as far down as he could be. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so whenever we are there at our lowest, just like this guy was, God comes in and he brings us comfort. And the reason he does that is certainly to lift us up, to encourage us, to set us on our feet. But also that we might use the comfort to comfort others. That's Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three and four. And finally, it ends with those bound by conceit. Verse 40. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, "What? Are we blind too?" Jesus said, "If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains." This was condemnation. That was coming upon these Jews. Willful blindness to the things of God leads to guilt and judgment. In other words, if you just ignore what God says in his word, if you ignore the inner guilt, well, judgment comes. Uh, Things to avoid as Christians, arrogance and stubbornness. That is what has led to the downfall of these Jews. That's what led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and so that's the lesson we're supposed to take from this: that God is gracious. He healed somebody that he didn't ask to be healed; he just got healed, right? And God was gracious and showed up after the persecution and brought comfort. And that's what God does for us. Any questions? Good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this blind man. Father, may we be so fortunate as to realize the depth of forgiveness the depth of healing that you have brought maybe not physically but to our souls and may we also be worshipers and help us not to be like the jews the leaders of the jews who denounced this miracle because of mud help us lord to have a proper view of things to walk in the wisdom that only you can provide in jesus name amen